This is Get a Real Job, the podcast devoted to people who choose risk over safe bets, who pursue their passion against all odds and are doing what they want, how they want, despite people and sometimes the voices in their own heads telling them they're nuts. When the field that I wanted to work in didn't exist, I created it. The only thing you have to decide is how hard you want to work. I really never went into the design of the restaurant of not succeeding. One way or another, I was going to succeed. I'm your host, Dan Bova, editorial director of entrepreneur.com. Thanks for listening. And now, get a real job. Today's guest wrote a fantasy book series called The School for Good and Evil that has sold more than 3 million copies and has been translated into 30 languages. I guess that's pretty good. But wait, what's this? It's also been adapted by Netflix into a film starring Charlize Theron and Kerry Washington and directed by Paul Feig. Well, now you're just showing off. Uh, today's guest is Soman Chanani. He's obviously an extremely talented writer. His work has been praised not just for being super entertaining, but also for its diverse representation of members of the LGBTQ community. He's got a new book out and I'm thrilled to talk to him about it. Welcome, Soman. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of um, everything Entrepreneur has done. Except my show, but uh, <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Uh, no, great to talk to you. And uh, wow, a lot of things going on here. This is uh, pretty awesome. You got a movie coming. Is it a movie or a series? It's a movie. It's one of Netflix's biggest movies ever made. And it'll come out next year. It's gargantuan in its size. So when you were starting out as a writer, was this all on the map? Did you see this all coming uh, down the road? Was this all inevitable in your mind? No. That said, I grew up idolizing Disney and the way of building a kind of fairy tale universe. You know, I was always interested in people who could build universes, whether it was Disney or Marvel or Star Wars or Game of Thrones or Harry Potter. And somewhere deep inside me, I was like, I can do that. Like, I, like there was almost this feeling of like, you know, I know if given the opportunity, I have, uh, you know, the, opp- the world inside me, like a, like a mini mm. multiverse inside me that is waiting to get out, you know? Oh, so I think the ambition was always there, but, yeah. you know. Never, never really admitted it to myself until I was able to actually have the opportunity. That's, that's, that's amazing. So, you know, a lot of people dream of being writers. Obviously, there's a lot of fans of sci-fi and fantasy who watch things and be like, I could do that. I could do that. But when, when did the moment uh, come to you when you're like, uh, not only can I do that, I'm going to do that. That's what I'm going to do. Well, I went to film school um, after college and I came out and was making a pretty successful living as a screenwriter, but it was everybody else's ideas, you know? Mm. And I just had gotten tired of working on so many, so many things that weren't getting made. And I was supposed to direct a movie and then that got put on ice. And, you know, it was just one thing after the other. And I think I finally had a breaking point where I was walking around a park in London and had this kind of image of, two fairy tale castles, you know, a good castle and an evil castle and, and two girls falling into the wrong schools, a princess falling into the evil castle and, and sort of a, a witch falling into the good castle. And I remember having this idea of like, oh, this is a good idea. And I could feel that it was just the tip of the iceberg, that the whole yeah. story, the whole world was already there and had been percolating and waiting. 
And originally I was like, I'm going to do this as a movie and started working on it as like an outline for a screenplay and stuff. And I think something in me went, no, because then it will get corrupted by other voices or it won't get made. And it's going to just sit, you know, in your computer forever. Let's do this one as a book. You know, it was this understanding of let's take control of it. Let's make yeah. it, you know, and look, if it wants to be made into a movie later, uh, that will happen in its own sort of faded way. I sort of had given up on, on that as an option. Um, but I think taking control of my own creativity became the impetus for it. And it has ever since become sort of my guiding light, which is always like, I am in control of my idea. Like, I'm not going to work on anything where someone corrupts the idea. I will take input, wow. I will take collaboration, but there will be no collaboration on the idea. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's awesome. Wow, that that's fantastic. And uh, I do want to dig into that a little bit, but I can't help but wonder now that you, you wrote this series and you did it exactly the way you wanted it to do to do it, and now it's becoming a movie. So it somehow leaves your hands, and now it's in the hands of other people. Uh, what's that process like? What's it like watching that unfold? I mean, the good thing is it's, it was in development a very long time, in which I had a whole lot of input because mm-hmm. um, you know it was in development for seven years, and so. Uh, I met with every writer. There were times where I was more in control, times where I was less in control, times where I was ghostwriting, you know, on the screenplay when a screenwriter quit. Like there were all sorts of you wow. know, ups and downs along the way. Um, and so by the time the script was in really good shape and Paul Feig read it and came aboard, you know, it was pretty faithful to the book. And I think when he read the script and had read the book, he all, he, he's the only person on earth, I think, who could direct this movie because his vibe and his frequency is so similar to mine. He's always been one of my favorite directors. Mm. When he came on and sort of presented his vision for it and all his visuals and everything, I mean, it's so close to what's in my yeah. imagination, but bigger. Like he just has a very large scale. <laughs> <of> what, <laughs> maybe because I, I live in New York, so everything's kind of small. So in my head, the school was like, small um but it's not (laughs) so i think i think it it just became sort of a grander version of my imagination so um i think uh it's been all good so far i spent a good chunk of time on set in ireland i felt completely comfortable you know and i just think it's going to be a great movie at the same time i think you uh, you know coming from the film world into the book world i am fully aware that the mediums are very different mediums and you have to make changes and you have to get to readjust. And you also want it to feel surprising to fans in its own way. So um, I I embrace the changes that will come, but it's a, it's, it's a faithful adaptation at heart. That's, that's incredible. Um, And uh, well, you mentioned Disney uh, as, as a kind of inspiration to you in in your new book, uh, Beasts and Beauty, uh, is, you know, it's pretty interesting. There's, there's some Disney stuff in there. I wonder if you could talk, you know, explain to people a little bit what it is and sort of how the idea came about. And I'm also just curious, like how, uh, like are these copyrighted ideas? Like how did, how did this all work? Well, the cool thing about fairy tales is, you know, we all think they came from Disney. Um, but of course they came hundreds of years earlier from the book. Hans Christian Anderson and all these, all these writers who wrote them down from the oral tradition. And even more than that, you know, these fairy tales are intrinsic to our DNA. They're, in, they're built in us because no matter where you are in culture and history, the stories pop up in their own way. There's a Chinese Snow White, there's a Mexican Snow White, there's a European Snow White, right? It happens on its own. They weren't communicating, obviously, through time, but they just pop up. We tell Cinderella stories. We tell Red Riding Hood stories. It's the way we're built. 
Disney came in, sanitized them, and added this extra dimension, which got us in trouble, which was the idea that the good guy always wins. And it's sort of the good guys labeled and the evil guys labeled, and the good guy will always win in the end. You know, even to the case in point of The Little Mermaid, where the original story, Ariel's the villain and dies at the end because she makes all the terrible mistakes. You know, she's the disobedient one, the one who um, falls in love with the prince without knowing anything about him. She goes to her father's worst enemy, the sea witch, so she's a traitor. You know, these yeah. are all things present in the Disney movie, but at the end, she somehow comes out victorious. Which right. Is <laughs> so, you know, Disney created this idea that you are either good or you're evil, and you have to, you know, whichever side you're on, it's uh, you're there forever. Mm. And I think that has infected everything in our world. I think it's infected mm. our politics. I think it's created this idea that you identify with the side and you stick with the side through the trenches no matter what. Right. And the original fairy tales taught the complete opposite, which is sometimes you need to be a little shifty. Sometimes you have to be a little shady. Sometimes you have to be virtuous. Sometimes you have to do the right thing. Sometimes you don't have to do the right thing. It's all about survival and coming out, you know, uh, uh, alive, you know, and meeting yeah. your goals and stuff. And so- Ultimately, what I think those fairy tales taught is that good and evil is in a constant continuum within every soul. You have all of those shades within you, right? And I think if we knew that and we grew up with those kinds of stories, I think we would live very different lives. I think yeah. we would embrace our shades, our contradictions. And I think, you know, we would be more respectful of differences and accept, you know what, we're going to lose this round, but we might win the next. And that's the way I present my world. In the School for Good and Evil, there is a complete understanding that sometimes good wins, sometimes evil wins. And in that way, the world moves forward one story at a time, right? So Beasts and Beauty, I just wanted to go back to the 1800s. And this was during lockdown when it felt like we were in the 1800s. And I thought, you know, let's start from scratch with a crystal ball to the future. And I'm going to rewrite these stories. And I'm going to rewrite them as if I can see what's going to happen. And I'm going to take what the stories were meant to be about, and I'm just going to retool them a little, so mm. or a lot in in most of the cases. So, um, for instance, you know, you look at um, a story like Little Red Riding, right? And Little Red Riding Hood, uh, the original story is about a girl kind of sent into the woods alone, and it's kind of a rite of passage for adolescence. And to me, I was more interested in the people who sent her the idea of the town sort of just sending this girl off into the woods. And I thought, you know, in our culture, it would make sense if the opening of the story is that on the first day of spring, the wolves around the town howl. And that's their signal that the town has to send their most beautiful girl into the woods to be eaten and killed. And in return, the wolves will leave the rest of the town alone for a year. And instead of fighting against this, the town's like, okay. And they just go along with it. Every year they send their prettiest girl into the woods to die and the wolves leave them alone. And to me, that was sort of the bigger metaphor for the world we live in, which is we turned a blind eye to so many evils in order to sleep better at night. So each story was about taking the seed from the original and trying to to find what that story would be today. Snow White is about, um, you know, the original stories, of course, about a girl who doesn't know her own beauty and runs against uh, an older queen whose beauty is her only value, right? And of course that leads to a clash. So in mine, you know, Snow White, is the only black girl in the kingdom whose mother names her that as kind of an ironic jab at the rest of the kingdom. Mm. And, you know, the mirror is saying Snow White's the most beautiful girl in the kingdom. And Snow White is like, agrees with the the queen, basically being it's impossible because she has nothing in the world that can possibly tell her she's beautiful, which of course reflects the larger metaphor of what our culture says beauty is. So, you know, it was just taking, taking the seed of the originals and finding ways to translate them for us. 
That's that's amazing. What what a, what an amazing idea! I can't I cannot wait to read this. Um, can we talk a little bit about your process? So I'm I'm curious, especially with this, where there's twelve you know individual stories. Um, do you attack this kind of one by one? Are you looking at the whole picture and then you sort of zoom in on different places and bounce around? How did you approach it? I'm a big fan of uh, musicians' process and the way that they craft albums. And I do mm. a lot of research on my favorite albums of how they're created because this kind of collection is an album. Yeah. Each story is a song. And, you know, you have to figure out a way to craft each song so it stands on its own, but it's part of a larger whole. Because that, to mm. me, is a sign of a great album, you know? So I think what was interesting about this is that unlike an album where you make 50 songs and then you just figure out which ones work together and all that sort of stuff, um, each time I finished a story, my brain would tell me what the next one was. Huh. Uh, and, and I wouldn't know ahead of time. So I, Red Riding Hood was first, and then I finished it, and I wrote Sleeping Beauty next, and then Snow White came. And one by one, you know, they, they came in order. And I kept thinking, I kept telling my editor, we'll reevaluate the order at the end. We'll see what it looks like at the end. Yeah. And that never happened. It, uh-huh. They all were written exactly in the order. It was almost like they were interconnecting as I went along. And as soon as I finished the last story, that was it, you know? So it really, in a strange way, was a very unified creative process. And it does feel like an album to me. It feels like you read it in one sweep and you have the highs and lows and and you can feel the kind of change in tones and, and the way right. everything together. That That's amazing. Um so let's 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 go back uh, to uh, so you, you as you said you went to you go to college you go to film school, um, you know was uh, a life as a creative person prof- a professional creative person was that always kind of like this is what I'm going to do or was that uh, a hard decision to make was it scary at all to go in that direction. Uh, it was not the plan because I think growing up, everyone always told me you're either going to be a novelist or make movies. And I did not believe them because I had no self-esteem. So okay. I felt like I, I, I didn't believe that was possible. So I mm. said, I'm going to work for my dad, who's in real estate. I'm going to go to business school and become like a consultant or an investment banker or something. So I got out of Harvard, got recruited, um, to be a pharmaceutical consultant, which is funny because I don't even take Advil when I have a headache. And (laughs) I lasted a year before I was fired because I was writing stories in the corner. Um, (laughs) And then I got another job and was fired from that because I was writing stories in the corner. So, you know, I, I was trying to be a normal, productive member of society and it wasn't working. Um, And I think at some point my dad was like, I don't think this path is going to pan out for you. I think you need to figure out what you really want to do. And I remember one of the guys um, who fired me when I was 23 was like, I said, I kept arguing for why I shouldn't be fired. And he was like, you don't even want to be here. You hate it here. Like you just need to figure out what you're going to do with your life. You know, and everyone kept telling me that. And I think I took a year off and I walked around Manhattan for a year on unemployment Thank God. You know, I had, I had a little money coming in. I just walked around um, literally every day for like eight to 10 hours a day. Wow. At the end of that year, one day I sat down and I was like, I'm going to film school and I didn't question it. It just, and I somehow I went from off the path to on the path. As soon as I went to film school, I had a new sort of approach 
to myself, which was I was going to trust my instincts. Yeah. And everything I did from then on in my life was about trusting my creative instincts, trusting my life instincts, and knowing that there was a higher kind of energy or frequency sort of like helping me move forward, if that that's, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's incredible. And, you know, having spoken to people who are in all kinds of industries, a lot of people have a kind of moment like that where, you know, they're sitting in a boardroom and they're looking across at someone who's 20 years older than them and their heart just sinks and they're like, no, that can't be me. I, I, that's just can't. And they like, literally some people just get up and walk out of the room and just like, that it was just a, a moment. Uh, uh, so that's, that's incredible that you were able to, to have that moment and to trust your instincts. And obviously you should have, because your instincts seem to have paid off pretty good. More coming up from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, very, very, very excited to tell you about a workout app called Future, which I've been using for about six months, and I gotta say, I genuinely love it. It is awesome. I've tried a bunch of different at-home workouts, but Future is totally different than anything I've ever used. Future provides one-on-one -on -one digital personal training and a fitness plan designed specifically for you, and it's delivered straight to your phone every week. But there's a human trainer involved too. You get hooked up with an expert coach like my trainer, Gabe, who will send me texts if I miss a session and gently suggest I get off my butt. So here's how it works. First, you select a coach. When you sign up, you get paired with the perfect coach to set and achieve your fitness goals. Then they make a plan. Your coach will create a complete training program based around your goals and schedule. And each week you'll have a new guided workout in the future app. And then it's time to sweat. Uh, you have to actually work out to get in better shape, sorry to say. But you work out as much as you want and when you want. You let your coach know which exercises you love and what you hated, and they will continually refine it until you got something that you really, really are psyched to do. And they continue to refine it. If you don't already have one, they send you an Apple Watch so that you and your coach can track your progress, celebrate achievements, and continue to tune that routine to absolute perfection. Future is the lowest you're ever going to pay for unlimited personal training from an elite coach. Consider this, an in-person training session usually costs about $100 an hour. This is $150 a month, which is a pretty great deal. But an even greater deal is for the Get A Real Job listeners, you get to try your first month of Future for only $19. You get that by signing up at tryfuture.com slash real job. You get to start off for only 19 bucks a month, and I promise you, you're going to love it. Tryfuture.com slash real job. And we're back. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone thought it was crazy. I remember when I first sold school for Geneva, I was sitting with my uh, editor at the time at lunch, and I was like mapping out like how I wanted everything done. I was like, listen, and this is going to be the color for the sequels, and here's what's going to match, and we're going to do this, and this is what the trailer's going to look like, and we need this color thread in the binding, because then we're going to reverse that in the next one. She's staring at me, because I'm like 28 or 29, and I'm like, listen, I'm trying to build you an empire. And she's like, this kid is an asshole. And what's funny is, you know, four years later, I remember um, we were joking because NPR did this whole whole story on it where they were like, you know, this is this is this underground empire. And I was like, I told you. She's like, I know, but like, no one was going to trust your instincts. Then. 
but you don't, you know, you, 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 I think as a 20 something, you're just so, you're driven by something deep within you that is pure ambition and hustle. And the question is whether it's based in real talent, you know, right. And I knew mine was based in talent because I tried so hard to run away from it. Mm. And because I was forced to confront it, I knew deep within, I was like, like this would not be happening if I didn't have talent. Cause if I didn't, did, didn't have talent, I would still be back in pharmaceutical consultant. Right, right, right. That's, that's awesome. So, so now let's go, go, uh, uh, get uh, zoom in a little bit more. So, uh, a lot of people have ambition. A lot of people have big dreams. They have big dreams in their head. But at a certain point, you have to sit down and you have to start poking at a keyboard yeah. or pick up a pen and start writing. So uh, put in the work. You have to do a lot of work. Um, so what what does that look like for you? What's your what's your Do you have habits? Work habits? Or is your habit no habit? What's your process like? No, it's in order to create this kind of stuff, you know, where I was doing a a 600 page book a year, plus touring, plus everything. Like I also, I grew up uh, a tennis player. Like that was my other dream was to potentially be a pro tennis player, but it just obviously didn't pan out. Um, And so I think those habits of watching the habits of tennis players and then once I became a writer sort of combined. And so my life is almost structured like an athlete's Mm. um, where there are two writing blocks during the day of about three, three and a half hours. And they're um, interrupted by uh, physical activity blocks. So I play tennis every morning and then I come right. And, you know, I play tennis at a high enough level because I was a competitive junior and stuff where it's pretty exhausting. So when I come to the right, I'm in almost in that flow state automatically, you know? Mm. Um, and then right as I'm starting to get tired and in my head and cranky, then I go work with a trainer in the afternoon, puts me back in the flow state, get back into writing. And then I'm usually done by about six, six thirty. So wow. it's this sort of like, you know, it's this attempt to get me into my body, get me relaxed enough where writing feels like, like almost like a vacation from yeah. the hard work, <laughs> if that makes any sense. That's that's amazing. That that's I I haven't heard of a of a schedule like that. That that's pretty cool. Um, and uh, d- during those writing blocks, are you like you know notifications off, th- phone off, TV off, or do you have like somewhat of a normal life? No, I have earplugs in, and I uh, wear these little computer glasses that sort of um, you know get rid of the glare and make everything in the world look vaguely unreal. Uh, uh-huh. but, uh, which I think everyone should have, cause it's somehow, I don't know, it, it just takes you out of the world a little, so you can yeah. more, but I actually find notifications and things like that a little helpful because what ends up happening is when I'm working on, so I don't have any notifications but, but for sure. Cause I don't want, um, those in charge of me, but when I'm working, like if I'm hitting a wall or I'm a little like, is this working? Is this working? I'll just go check my phone, see what's going on. And then I'll, I'll find myself sliding back and I'll have a completely sort of new perspective on the sentence or the paragraph or something mm. like that. Yeah. Or if, you think if you, if you shut all off, uh, all distractions off, I think you can get a little caught in your head. And yeah. I think, you know, I just have this natural way of, I think like working on something, working on something. And then when it's, I am headed in the wrong direction or I'm working it too hard or doing something wrong, I'll find myself going over to my email. And I almost know in my head that that's a sign that 
I got to take my eyes off it for 10 seconds or 20 seconds. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And are you, um, are you a big rewriter? Are you, do you edit like crazy or is what you're putting down kind of close to what it's going to be? No, no, no. I basically what I do first is I have a day. So each chapter I sort of start, um, with kind of a, uh, creative dump. It's like you come in and you're sort of like, it's almost like my eyes are closed and I'm just sort of like typing what I'm feeling, like what I'm feeling the flow is going to be. And as long as like, I'm really focused and in my body when I'm doing that, the entire skeleton is there. Right. And then I'll spend the next week or two kind of shaping it and working on it little by little, but that skeleton is kind of, you know, everything. So, um, yeah. And it's a lot of revision, a lot of, you know, messing with it, going back to it, going back to it. So no, the first drafts are never good. If anybody says whatever they write is close to the final, my God, (laughs) I wouldn't buy what they're selling. Uh, Right. So, uh, these, these processes, is is this something you've developed over time? Is is any of this, have you had any mentors who have sort of like pointed you in the right direction or you kind of just figure it out what works for you? Writing is so individual and personal, you know, that I think you have to figure it out on your own. You know, you'll process it on your own. And I've learned a lot, like, you know, with the first school for Guinea Bowl, it was highly outlined. And then while I was writing it, I would have these existential meltdowns because a chapter would deviate off the outline and have nothing to do with the outline. And I'm like, I am, what's wrong with me? I'm unfocused, like, uh, you know, like berating myself. And that chapter would, of course, turn out to be like the coolest thing ever. And I would be like, well, who wrote that chapter then? Because it wasn't in the outline. And I start to realize like, oh, I get it. Like I, instead of having to force control everything, you actually have to do the opposite and kind of surrender. Uh-huh. Um, because there's a, higher, there's a higher level of inner engineering that will do the work if you allow it to. And it cannot be, especially fantasy with 150 characters and 70 plot lines and 40 kingdoms, it cannot be consciously managed. Right. Um, <laughs> It has to be by instinct and it has to be from, from your unconscious. So, so much of what I do is about finding flow states and finding a place of surrender so that, that the inner work can, can do sort of come through. That's, that's awesome. And, and super inspiring. I'm sure to anyone who, uh, you know, writes or, or wants to write, but speaking of wants to write, there are a million reasons why we don't have enough time to write that idea down. You know, there's this, there's that, we're exhausted. So what, what's, your, what's your advice for the, the, the person who, who is not getting down to the keyboard or to, to, to their pad and want, desperately wants to be a writer, but just isn't getting there? Like push them over the edge, get them started. I think the amount of time required to be a writer is actually quite small. I think it's, it's where you, you have to just show up with the intention and the intensity and the openness to the idea and the commitment. So if I, I could write a book in 10 minutes a day, if I showed up every day for those 10 minutes, hundred percent, it would take a little longer, but I could yeah. do, it. you know, I know a girl whose first book was written entirely on her phone while she was at her job during boring meetings. You know, just like I would just sort of tune out and just sit there and work on my book, which is what I tried all those yeah. years ago, but there was no phone. And so I couldn't get away with it. Otherwise, I'm like, oh my God, I would have gotten paid twice. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think, you know, it's not about time. It's just about routine and it's about commitment. So, 
you know, if you need to get up at, if you get up at seven to get your job and you need to get up at 6.45, you can do that. If you want to yeah. be like, like, you know, set your 15 minute clock and do it. I can yeah. do a lot in 15 minutes, you know, right, happens right. All the time. you know, like I can do a lot in a 15 minute block. So, um, I think it's just about commitment and belief. And, you know, I learned this in tennis, which is that like, you know, if you don't deep down believe that you can be number one in the world, you don't like, and people are like, Oh, you're going to be number one in the world. And if you don't believe it, that person will never come through. You know, it has to be a core belief. So if you're deep inside, you're like, I am going to write a novel. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a poem, whatever it is. If you believe it, and then all you have to do is make the structures and routines to do it. But if deep inside you're like, oh, I want to write a book, but you don't actually believe you're going to do it, then it won't ever happen. That's, that's, that's awesome advice. Um, so, so we've got uh, the movie. When is that coming out again? Sometime next year. You know, I think it's a, it's a complex movie because it's so large and, and they've got to do effects and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I'm, you know, earliest would probably be summer. Uh, so we'll have to see how it goes. I'm going to London next week to sort of check in on everything and hang out with uh, the younger cast. There's sort of two different casts in the movie because there's the older cast and then they're, they're the kids. And I sort of hung out with them um, all during shooting and became sort of camp counselor. I call them the kids and I get so mad because they're like, <laughs> we, are, we are over 20. And I'm like, you're still kids to me. Them, you know so are we when we watch the movie are you gonna pop up in the background anywhere or do you, do you get a line of dialogue or i don't know let's let's see those kinds of things i can't comment on but i don't know author cameos are a little dodgy so um you know okay um, all right well i think there's our answer uh and the book beasts and beauty is out now um, it's out now everywhere um and it makes i think what's cool about beast beauty in particular is i always wanted to write a book that was a beautiful book physically. And we were very sort of like focused on making sure that when you picked it up, it felt like an old fairy tale collection, but also had kind of a, a modern feel to it. And I think this one, we worked very hard on picking the artist. Um, and, you know, we committed to full color art and giving it that kind of weight of the book. So it feels like this thing that you can pass down to your kids or give as a gift or, yeah. you know, we wanted it. And also we wanted it to be something for kids and adults. Yeah. Um, it works for both audiences. And in the U S it's being published for 10 and up, ages 10 and up. And in the UK, it's being published as uh, a literary novel only for adults, which is huh. like, to me, it's the greatest compliment in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm very happy about it, but um, that's awesome. Yeah. So can you give us uh, uh, as, as a builder of empires, uh, any uh, sneak peeks at what's what's next in the uh, Soman Empire? Yeah, so we just unlocked, like unveiled the big kind of umbrella brand, the the Alt Walt uh, is what I call it, like the alternative Disney World, um, called Ever Never World, which will be sort of my big umbrella kind of fantasy universe. So um, School for Good and Evil was one kind of like planet in that galaxy and now beast and beauty is another sort of planet in the galaxy and hopefully that'll have its own screen ad adaptation and so yeah i have a i'm almost done with a, another book that will sort of you know add to that kind of constellation in that galaxy and my goal really is to do what i thought i could do as a kid which is build my own little disney universe but in this case opposite of disney because this is definitely you know a different side of fairy tales that's awesome that's awesome well 
Uh, this all sounds incredible. I, I really can't wait to, to read this piece of beauty. It sounds amazing. So thank you so much uh, for talking to us and firing up. I'm sure a lot of people are going to uh, get psyched up to start writing as soon as this is over. So thanks so much, man. It was really great talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. That's our episode, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. Get a Real Job comes out every Tuesday. So be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you harvest your favorite podcasts. Leave us a review. Give us a share. Big people. Go to entrepreneur.com for new episodes of this and to listen to our other great podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.